Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today, I get to speak with a very special yogi named Darren Main. He's a yoga teacher and an author. We'll talk more about um, his books uh, and his work uh, as the podcast progresses. You can find out about him at darrenmain.com. Hello, Darren. It's nice to have you on the podcast. I am so honored to be here. I, I was thrilled to get your email, and I'm honored to be here with you. Well, it's nice to meet you. Now, we are going to do this um, organic. Uh, Darren and I have not spoken before, but he was referred to me from someone who studies with me at the online school that I do, the School of Indian Wisdom, and uh, he seems to be a fan. This young Jedi is a fan of <laughs> the Indian Religions podcast, among other things, and he just said, look, if you're looking for people for the Life Wisdom podcast, you got to check out this Darren guy, this Darren main guy. And I emailed you and here we are. So you, ha- you have admirers, that's for sure. Oh, I prefer to call them Padawans, but... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever gets you by. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe a bit of the context of um, sort of how do you know Dustin or what is the, what is the backdrop for the introduction? Um... Yeah, Dustin, I, I know through a mutual friend of ours um, and he, fellow yoga teacher, but he wound up I trusting me enough to go to India with me, which is, um, India is a wonderful place, but it's intense and beautiful and maddening and, and all of the above. And he trusted me enough to, to go with me on one of my retreats and just a fantastic guy, just so excited about everything he encountered um, and really open to the, the experience of India. So um, yeah, he's wonderful. And we've, he's done some of my other courses as well. Now, do you um, often, or do you still lead retreats to India? Uh, well, I don't know what I do <laughs> after the pandemic. Oh, well, by the end of the, okay, our goal for today's conversation, Darren, is yeah. to, uh, is to figure out what you do. <laughs> Oh, good. Well, I hope we get that done. No, my intention is to start leading retreats to India again, but it's just, you know, with the pandemic, it's just, I had to put everything on hold and wait for this craziness to pass and, and then figure out what happens next. But I miss going to India. I've been there like 10 or 15 times. Um, My son, who's um, 11, has been five times. So um, I can't wait to get back, but it just, it's obviously not a great time to be doing international travel, unfortunately. Sure, sure. I mean, the, the, obviously the pandemic has put us all in suspended animation or in some sort of processing. Um, so what takes you to India? Is it your work? Is it just, an, you know, why do you go to India when you're there? What do you do there? Well, for me, um, yoga is a, obviously a huge part of my life. And I think just as somebody who is Muslim might go to Mecca to feel more connected to that faith tradition, or somebody who is Jewish or Christian might go to the Holy Land in Israel to feel more connected to their tradition. For me, um, yoga is not exclusively Indian, but it's got so much deep roots, obviously, for thousands of years of evolving. Um, that there's something about going and practicing on the Ganges River and just immersing myself in in the roots of this tradition that I feel so passionate about. And then to bring other people who, you know, may have had these life-changing experiences on the yoga mat and they want to understand it. Like, that's sort of like the past is prologue. If you want to understand modern yoga, you have to sort of look backward for a moment and look at ancient yoga and see how we got to Lululemon or whatever it is we're doing um, in the yoga world today. So then would it be fair to say that yoga for you um, beyond the postures um, is also engagement of um, uh, philosophy, uh, teachings, practices from ancient India? Is Is that fair to say? Yeah, I I tend not to think of myself as a religious person. Um, I think religion can be wonderful for many people. I I believe more for myself in self inquiry, and 
just constantly looking within. And I feel like yoga the, the, and the practices and philosophy that um, are, make up yoga are a profound form of self-inquiry um, that use the mind through meditation, the breath through pranayama, um, the body through asana practice. And, and, and then, of course, just reflecting on these ancient texts like the Gita or the Yoga Sutras the Upanishads, it's just, it's like a mirror to just look within. So that's yeah, what it is certain, for me. I know it's different things to different people, but. Sure, sure. But it's, it's your journey that I'm interested most in currently. And there seems to obviously be a fair bit of overlap in that I tend to teach uh, Indian philosophy, uh, um, um, traditions, esoterica, and um, uh, the, a very strong uh, contingent of my studentship are yoga practitioners, right? I don't teach asanas. Um, the courses aren't particularly designed um, for yoga teachers per se, and yet so many of my my best students are people from the yoga world who want to learn. They really want to delve into the spirituality and the, the philosophy and the self-inquiry. So what you're saying resonates certainly with my personal experience. Yeah. I always think of like Western yoga as a gateway drug. <laughs> it's sort of the thing that introduces people. They think it's they're the going date. for fitness, you know, and, and then all of a sudden they're noticing these shifts and changes happening within them in their life and then internally, and they naturally want to understand that. And so, they gravitate to teachers like you because they they're like, Hey, this thing is happening and I don't have a frame of reference for it. Can you help me out? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I love that. It, it excites me to hear yeah. that people are finding you because of well, the yoga mat. It's so, in, but it's so interesting. I mean, without trying, uh, it's the yoga teachers, right? Like yoga teachers, people kind of who hold space, many teach, uh, many really want to learn about practices they can do in their yoga studio. Um, something that kind of surprised me, but didn't surprise me is the thirst for uh, Indian mythology and understanding these ancient stories. Um, maybe, maybe it doesn't really surprise me, but I, you know, it's strange. It's about 10 years ago, I was doing these talks publicly in the yoga circuit in Toronto, and I thought that chapter was done. And here I am now doing online education. And again, that, that theme has circled that the kind of dovetailing yeah. of, of the, the, the modern yoga movement, sort of subsection of that that's interested um, in more than the postures yeah. and sort of where that meets kind of um, Hindu narrative, uh, Hindu philosophy. And, 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 and yet, as you say, it's not the people who are coming. Um, it's not a, religious paradigm per se and yet it is so soulful and so spiritual and that's why this this podcast is called life wisdom not you know religion (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh i was just gonna say i have a theory about this and i'd love to hear your perspective i think you may have some insight for me on this um i'm a big fan i studied a lot of psychology western psychology in college and when Carl Jung and even Sigmund Freud, so many of the terms Freud used were rooted in Greek mythology. And I think that these stories, whether they're rooted in a historical event or they're pure myth or some mixture of the two, um, or modern myths like Star Wars, you know, they help us access something that is beyond the intellect. Right. That it's, it's, and, and I think Hindu, um, I'll say mythology. I know different people understand the various deities differently, but the stories of Ganesha, you know, and why he's hanging out with that little mouse all the time, (laughs) all of this is inherently curious to us as seekers because I think it speaks to a deep truth that we don't quite understand, but it helps us in this sort of fantastical way, understand this very deep truth. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because it, it, I I don't really, I feel like you're better equipped to speak to that than I am. 
Well, it's interesting you ask. I mean, we don't we don't really have a whole lot of exposure to each other, obviously, other than probably the odd Google search or this conversation. But this will maybe contextualize it. So in 2010, I started teaching continuing studies, adult learners at the University of Toronto School for Continuing Studies. And I decided to create this course. I had a very, very interesting and rich life, but part of that involved a fairly deprived childhood in many ways. So I just arrived an adult and then circumstances just exasperated that. So, uh, you know, in my, um, you know, then I was about, you know, somewhere in my early 30s, some friends said, you have to watch Star Wars. It was, there, it was all the rave. I think there were the, 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 you know, the prequels are out. And, and so I said, sure. So I'm sitting there watching Star Wars for the first time. This is in my 30s, having done, um, you know, a couple of religious studies degrees and having this kind of narrative brain to begin with. And it it hit me like a ton of bricks because we watched Star Wars and we also watched Lord of the Rings. Same friends over a course of, you know, a few weeks, right? We made some evenings out of it. And it astonished me that... Um, uh, Religion hasn't gone anywhere. It's gone to the big screen. So yeah. the, 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 the mythic archetypes, the, 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 the narrative tropes that have inspired and educated untold millions, these, these, these tropes are in sci-fi fantasy. And so I decided to pitch this course at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies where for the first half of the course, we will look at ancient mythologies typically ancient Near Eastern, because our culture is more familiar with, with that strata. So we looked at uh, biblical narratives. We looked at um, Greece, Persia, Rome. Uh, you get the idea. And then the second half, we looked at Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, Star Wars, right? And we the were Matrix. looking at, yeah, the Matrix. We were looking at ideas that were very, very similar. Now, as foolish as this is going to sound, it's only in upon researching this course that I already pitched, because it was clear to me these connections existed, upon researching it, did I discover a figure named Joseph Campbell, <laughs> who some I decades before Campbell. had read every religious story he could find and came up with this, this thing we now know as the hero's journey. It looked really cool. I'll have to use him for the theory. Okay. And then it's ridiculous. I didn't know any of this. I discovered... George Lucas literally read like Joseph Campbell he read every with Joseph Campbell. Well, uh, 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 Joseph Campbell read every mythological story he can get his hands on. He distilled them into what he thinks of as his hero's journey, this archetypal journey and hero with a thousand faces. The publication was called um, somewhere mid uh, last century. Uh, George Lucas was struggling desperately to finish the script of a new hope. It was only upon finding Joseph Campbell's archetype that he then, Oh, okay. I now can more clearly see the story that I'm telling. Yeah. I didn't know any of those connections. I pitched this course. It was a popular course. It ran for about seven, eight years, pretty much my whole time at the school. And so it's clear to me that, um, storytelling is the story um, narrative is, is this is the guts of who we are as human beings, mm. right? So yes, the, the, if you know the koshas, right? That yes, the the um, the, the asanas are the are the anamaya kosha, the food body, the physical body. The pranayama is the pranamaya kosha, the energy body, right? Where do we find the manamaya kosha stories, storytelling, emotions? This is the stage of the human experience and these stories. So what I do at the school and elsewhere is I tell these stories and I show why we love them, why they grip us, what they're saying. So Ganesha, Ganesha sitting on a mouse. Oh, these ridiculous backwards people. Why would an elephant sit on a mouse? This makes no sense. What are you, what are you out of it? Well, Ganesha, one of his, most popular names is Lambodra, the heavy one. He's heavy. He's grounding. In in in, in sort of tantric narratives, he is he resides in the Muladhara chakra, right? Um, 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 what does the mouse do? Scurry here, there, everywhere. Fear. What is the emotion associated yeah. with Muladhara? Fear. So Ganesha, 
renders still and stable the mouse. So that's a metaphor for the grounding power of Ganesha for the mind, or you get the idea. So I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but I think you're onto something. (laughs) Good. Um, One of my favorite quotes comes from Joseph Campbell. I am a huge Joseph Campbell fan. Um, And it's just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it's not true. Exactly. Like, did this guy with an elephant head sit on a mouse? Literally? No, probably not. But is it true? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, did did Luke Skywalker confront his father, Darth Vader, and (laughs) wrestle with his demons? And no, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And and I think (laughs) that when we see spiritual text and mythology through that lens, it just opens up this whole world of, what I can learn. Well, know? it's, it's, it's for me, these narratives, you know, stepping aside, sidestepping the idea of whether they're history or not, or literally true, whether or not that's the case. Yeah. They nevertheless encode profound spiritual, psycho-spiritual truths. And yeah. in my view, this is the work of ancient storytelling and all storytelling. Mythological storytelling, it's, what is it? It's the dramatization of our inner life. And if you can kind of understand the story, then you will definitely understand something more about yourself, about your your conversation partners, about life. Um, but it, but story is interesting in that it's not. Um, it takes a certain kind of character. I was about to say nut, but that's a little pejorative. It takes a certain kind of nut to actually be willing and able to decode a story and see what the themes are, what the message is, what what the story is saying yeah. in sort of a symbolic way. You know, I my first book was called Spiritual Journeys Along the Yellow Brick Road. And it was all about the Wizard of Oz as a spiritual metaphor. And it was loosely based on Joseph Campbell's ideas. I mean, that that each character in the story is an archetype. It's, it's not something... Your mother isn't the Wicked Witch, right? The Wicked Witch is inside you, as is the Good Witch and Toto and whatever. And I had... When that book came out, I would get so many emails from people who have loved The Wizard of Oz as a movie their whole life, like sort of obsessed with it. I went to speak at a Wizard of Oz convention. I didn't even know they had Wizard of Oz conventions. Um, And people would come up to me in tears and like, I finally understand why I love this movie because Mm. it's me. It's my journey. You know, exactly. Every facet of it is me. The ugly parts, the scary parts, the beautiful parts, the hopeful parts, right? And I think that when we start to see that, I, I always say it's sort of like Google Maps in your car, right? That's not to scale. It's sort of cartoonish, or you look at Waze, and there's a little picture of a, a cop up ahead, and you want to slow down so you don't get a ticket. It does. It's not to scale. It's not authentic or real. It's very fantastical looking. And yet it gets you where you need to go. It creates that map that guides you. And I, I feel like our stories are like a Google map for the soul. Without without question, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, stories, a particularly uh, richly literary narrative archetypal stories, they are maps of meaning. They're maps of of, 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 of the human journey. And th- what's so, I think what's lost to, I think the, I think that the wisdom of storytelling that's lost to us is implicated in the wisdom of the intangible that is the human experience. Like mm. we are not in a physical, tangible world where we have physical bodies, we engage a physical world, but the human experience is actually between our ears. Our experience is not in the world. And science obviously is the best arbiter of all things objective in the actual physical world. But the human experience is fundamentally subjective, but not chaotic. There are patterns there. There is sort of a syntax there. And, and, And the syntax of storytelling gets us at the inner life and how we process yeah. why why are people still reading othello because there's a shortage of creativity why are people still reading you know various works uh, the ramayana 2500 years old why because there's stories that still tell us about ourselves yeah what's interesting is um how stories from like ancient indian culture 
an ancient Egyptian culture and ancient Hebrew culture. They're different. There's obvious cultural differences from these different traditions, different civilizations. But there, there is a through line that is so identifiable that it didn't come from the culture. It came from a universal human experience that then got framed by the culture. But um, it, it is amazing to me why you know some non-Hindu, non-Indian white guy from Connecticut, like me, can find such inspiration in something that is, on the surface, very foreign to me, right? But on a deeper level, just speaks to me as if it's my mother's cooking, you know? It's, it's pretty amazing. Well, it's, it's the appeal of these narratives. It's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of a... It's, um... It's an implicit assumption of this podcast and probably of, of my life in general that there's no monopoly on truth or wisdom. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to, it belongs to the human species. Wisdom is something that we experience if we're lucky from time to time. And um, uh, uh, wisdom isn't something that um, uh, someone can recognize wisdom from a different culture. Yeah. Right from a different time, from a different space. And I think that is the power of storytelling. And I think that's why when folks do archetypal mythological stories well in the modern world, they are absolute blockbusters because people crave, they yearn this spiritual nourishment, if you will. Yeah. And so this is why for some Star Wars is a religious experience. This yeah. is why people are related when Luke destroys the Death Star. It's triumphant. It's exalted, right? Um, it, it's, it's also fascinating to me that the great teachers taught in stories. They taught in parables. I mean, Jesus being the most obvious. Um, but, and even said that, like, you've hid these from the wise and this truths from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. What do little children do? They like fairy tales and stories, right? And fantasy. And, you know, so when a teacher like Jesus or any of the other great teachers say, sit down, I'm going to tell you a story. There's the story, and then there's the lesson. You know, there's there's the juice in the story. So yeah. sometimes when I teach narrative courses, I'll start off with this with this little vignette, and I say, imagine you're in the desert and you're really thirsty, and your mouth is parched, and you just really want some some water, obviously. And someone comes along and hands you a coconut, and you're like, oh, this is coarse and dry and hard. Are you like, are you nuts? Like, it's the last thing you want to put against your tongue. And then they're like, wait, silly. And they pull out a machete. They crack the coconut. And they they leak this luxurious water into your mouth. This coconut water, hydrating, delicious. This is what stories are like. The philosophy is there. The teachings are there. Right? But you need to have a mechanism of cracking them and availing them. But the, 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 the um, unconscious mind gleans them. This is why stories yeah. condition civilizations, right? You glean the the values, the do's, the don'ts, whether or not you consciously understand them. But when you consciously understand them, I think it's all the more intriguing and, and probably it embeds it a little deeper. So how did you get involved in the story and yoga all at the same time? Do you do you still do you, do you still do you, do you integrate these two in your path? Uh you know, for me I've I feel like I've been led, like, usually, you know that saying, sometimes it's a carrot, sometimes it's a stick. For me, it's usually the stick. I usually learn the hard way. Try the every way but the right way. <laughs> so I finally am just beaten up, and, and then I choose the right door. Um, but for me, I got clean and sober pretty early in life. I was 17 and had to find a higher power. And I was raised Catholic, and that definitely didn't work for me. Um, I, there were things about the Catholicism I liked, the stories, <laughs> the cool statues, the symbolism, the ritual, the pageantry, uh, the dinner theater, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, but the, the dogma didn't work for me. And so, so there was a yoga class in my hometown, and I was like, well, my mom's freaked out by it, so it must be good. <laughs> The Pope forbids it. It's definitely good. Um, 
And so I just started doing this yoga class and um, it was amazing to come home to my body, to have, to, to say, you are not wrong or bad. You're perfect. You just have to let go of everything that's not you, you know, that, um, and then I think over time I started, I think the way my brain works is I'm sort of wired for that Joseph Campbell. Like when I sit and watch a movie, I can't just relax and enjoy Spider-Man like most people do. I'm like, oh, that means this. Oh, they're referring to that, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of, for me, I love yoga philosophy or any philosophy, really not yoga is just my first love. Um, but I don't like to sit in a college lecture and hear about dates and stuff like that doesn't work for me. I have to integrate it into a personal philosophy. Um, and the stories really helped me with that. So I think it was a natural fit to um, merge those two ideas together. I remember, I think about four or five years ago, I ended up um, pulling together a group of scholars for, um, I think it was an online web magazine for the American Academy of Religion, their their online magazine. And it was, it was about teaching Hinduism uh, through storytelling using stories in the Hindu studies classroom, um, teaching through stories, teaching about stories, um, 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 teaching within stories, right? The, 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 the interplay between pedagogy and storytelling is profound, right? As you said, I mean, yeah. storytelling is this, is this wonderful tool for, for imparting wisdom, communicating ideas because they are, you know, stories teach you when you, when you least expect it. It's not really someone waving a finger at you and giving you a bunch of rules. It's sort of somebody suggesting a way of being to you that you can kind of grapple with on your own terms. Yeah. I think um, there's two kinds of learning. There's memorizing facts and figures and dates and, you know, like, so the Wikipedia page for whatever the topic is. And then there's, taking that knowledge and integrating it and saying, I always say my mantra when I'm studying, when I open a, an ancient text or even a modern book or take a class, anything is why should I care? Like, what is the point? What, what relevance does this have to my life? And if I can't answer that, then I'm sort of missing the point, right? When reading this old book called the Bhagavad Gita, what does that have to do with my life? Arjuna, Krishna, sitting on a battlefield, having a big, long conversation, like, why should I care? And if I can answer that question, then the, the, the story and the, the wisdom just opens like a lotus flower. But otherwise, it's just this nerdy, like, okay, uh, who's Arjuna again? <laughs> you know, this old guy from like 4,000, 5,000 years ago, like, who cares? Um, yeah, so why so should I care? That's my mantra. <laughs> Well, it's, I think that's a very relevant question, uh, exceedingly so in our times. You touched a bit on your book about uh, the Yellow Brick Road. Um, what else have you written? Um, probably my best-selling book is um, Yoga and the Path of the Urban Mystic. And it's basically a like a um, tour of yoga philosophy for modern yogis. Sort of like what we started talking about, how people roll out their yoga mat for fitness, and then they realize there's something more going on here. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what to call it. You know, when people come up to me after class and they got tears in their eyes, I'm like, what's happening? I'm like, I wrote a book about it. Um, so it's sort of like yoga philosophy. I think for, for someone like you, it would be very basic, basic stuff. Um, the first part is largely Vedanta, and the second part is largely the eight limbs in classical yoga. But it's, it's a lot of stories of my own journeys and my students, and it's just say, what is Ahimsa? Like, how, how, how do we understand Ahimsa? Why is it important? Um, or Samadhi, you know, like, how, how can we contextualize that? It's sort of a weird concept if you're not familiar with it. Um, and so it's done really well. It's used in teacher trainings all over the world now. Um, and then I have a meditation Fantastic. book and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> so, so what, this is a broad question. You can answer however you wish, I suppose. What 
clearly you resonate with yoga practice and teachings and culture, and clearly uh, you've been able to derive something along the lines of life wisdom or, or, or practical insight for living life, right? For getting through this thing we call life. Um, can you say a bit about that? Like specifically, what what have you learned, or, or or you know what what kernels do you think is uh, might be worth sharing to a larger audience? Um, well, I I sort of differentiate between religion and spirituality, or religion and mysticism, by saying religion is about learning about something. It's about learning the rights and the wrongs and the mythology and memorizing the Bible verses or whatever. Versus and experience. Right. And mysticism is about unlearning. It's about you are perfect. Like a child, they find joy in rolling down a hill. They don't need a yoga class to find joy in their body. We come into this world knowing it, being open, receptive. We're not racist. We're not sexist. We're non-judgmental. We're just sort of, oh, you're a person and you smile at me and I smile back. Or you scowl at me and I scowl back. It's very simple. Um, so for me, yoga is, um, it's this beautiful, I call it the shaking of the Etch-A-Sketch. Remember that little toy where you'd sketch stuff and then you could clear the pattern by just giving it a good shake. I feel like yoga practice, that's what it does. It shakes my Etch-A-Sketch. It is all those samskaras that I've held on to that says, this is what I need to be happy. And this is who I am. And this is the way the world should be. And this is what. This, the, my preconceptions and prejudices, all of that is all like just patterns I've picked up along the way. And yoga, whether it's the breath work, the asana practice, the meditation, the, you know, like Raja yoga or not Raja yoga, um, yana yoga, reflecting on these ancient texts. It, it's a way to shake the Etch-A-Sketch and make me say, I don't need to hold on to this. I can, I can sort of re- reboot the computer and go back to the original state, which was loving, open, kind, Atman. Um, so that's what it is to me. And I, and there are many ways to shake that Etch-A-Sketch. Yoga is just one of many, but it's the one that feels, for whatever reason, most authentic to me. It's like some people like the color blue, others like the color red. It's all just light, just bent in a slightly different direction. You you obviously have an affinity, a samskara, if you will. Perhaps this isn't your first rodeo in samsara with your with yogi <laughs> traditions, <laughs> but either way, um, um, I like the way you put that. That um, you know, culture very much is about learning, and while obviously there's a lot of cultural baggage and cultural paradigms in yoga, the active ingredient of yoga and yogic wisdom is unlearning, decluttering. Yeah. You know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really inquiring it, 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 what's at stake like who who you think you are who are you yeah. who told you you're this who told you you're that who told you you should do this who told you you should do that why are you doing this what, like what's possessing you to do what you're doing moment to moment are you doing it freely are you just uh, you know and, and you know people come one of the things I do is um, one-on-one coaching work and folks will come with all kinds of blocks and challenges and many times they're implicated in an internalized perception, a, a myth in a pejorative sense, a myth that they take as true and don't realize that they can erase that or rewrite that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear you speak about your work. I have a theory, again, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I have many theories. I have no shortage of theories. But- love it. My theory is that um, the United States and the Western democracies that followed um, really created a paradigm of uh, creating a mixing pot where it used to be like we had these tribes of people and we just kept them separate and you never really mix these tribes. It's like, you've got your tribe, I've got my tribe. It's defined by religion or the color of your skin or where you live or the language you speak. And we never mix that. And then, you know, the United States was born and other Western countries quickly followed. And we started mixing these things. And sometimes it can feel a little like ammonia and bleach. You know, it's hard because we are different in many ways. But then we get these beautiful um, 
new things that arise as a result of that, of like, oh, wow, your culture does this and my culture does this. And we mix them together and we come up with something entirely new and beautiful. Um, And I feel like Indian culture um, is almost like a democracy of philosophy. It it is uh, like the, one of the things I love about India is where so many other spiritual traditions like to keep it sectioned off. Like the thing that defines me as a Christian is I'm not Jewish or Muslim. (laughs) You know, when I go to India, they're like, Oh, Christianity, tell me about it. Oh my God, that dovetails with what I believe in. Well, you know what? I think I'm going to call Jesus an avatar. (laughs) And it just, it's, it's almost like this mixing of different approaches that brings forth something that is so entirely new and then new again you know even as we're recording this it's it's like it's this openness to new ideas that i really appreciate and i think western like when india and other tradition or india when yoga and buddhism and other traditions came west and there's something magical happening with that external and internal yeah regarding the first part of your theory I would say that it resonates insofar as um, uh, a couple of caveats in terms of, you know, there are going to, uh, humans are humans to a certain extent, such that there will be um, tyranny, xenophobia, patriarchy, sectarianism in every corner of creation, India being no yeah. exception, ancient or modern. This is just part of the human um, experience. Um, having said that, um, I I have noted uh, the overarching differences between Abrahamic religions and the traditions coming from India, civilizational India, not the, the modern nation state necessarily, but South Asia or civilizational India, um, such that, you know, Abrahamic ideology is, um, what's crucial to it is demarcating yourself from everything else. So, for example, Abraham makes a covenant with Yahweh so as to be a chosen people against the backdrop of what we might think of now as the pagan world, right? Yeah. The ancient Near East, right? Uh, similarly, this trope is repeated with Christianity to a certain extent. Um, yeah, if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not a Christian. Um, uh, then again, with Islam, you know, there's this, there is this. Um, when you teach world religions, it's it's very crucial that you convey that the idea of uh, obedience, um, the idea of a covenant, the idea of belief, right? Specific beliefs. That's very important. That's not to say there aren't a variety of individuals of every stripe in every country and every religion, of course. But ideologically, Abrahamic faiths tend to be founded on this idea of branching off from. And you see that a little bit in India in terms of like Sikhism, like later movements will be like, okay, we're Sikhs, we were turbans, we carry uh, swords, this is important. Um, So you see this everywhere. But um, having said that, Indic tradition, uh, India is a syncretic soil. This is how I think of it. It grafts one thing onto another thing onto another thing. And when you're trying to understand Hinduism, there's no such thing as Hinduism because Hinduism is an umbrella term coined by the British for census. I mean, everything else. So I call it the Hindu jungle. It's not a thing. It's an ecosystem. And yeah. so you have Vedic ritual in that culture dominating, but folding in sort of this yogic or ascetic philosophy, folding in the Puranas, folding in Shaivism, folding in goddess worship, folding in etc., 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 Holding in Tantra. And there is this powerful syncretic strand, not to say there weren't sectarian debates and division. Of course, of course, of course. But 30,000 foot view, I would agree 100% about there being something a little more right brained about Indic civilization that's able to hold paradox and something a little more left brained about Abrahamic civilization that's intent on. A or B, whereas in India, it's both yeah. end. I, I, I think that um, I was interviewing, um, what's his name? Um, Ravi Shankar, 
the the guru and um naturally i wanted to play stump the guru so i wanted to ask a question that see if he had an answer and he did are you are you, are you a contrarian darren i am a contrarian you know it's so funny that i spend <laughs> my one life of your many virtues many many virtues <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't believe in astrology per se, but I had an astrologer once tell me, you're perfectly willing to believe in leprechauns. You just want to meet one first. And I'm like, that's uh, pretty much it. Um, no, I he was a delightful man. And, uh, you know, but I always like when somebody wears guru robes, I always feel like, okay, you got to, I'm going to test your metal here. So I just said, what do you prefer, um, dualism or non-dualism? And he's like, yes. <laughs> and it, it's like this, what to a Western brain, I think dualism is, I would say the predominant strain in Western spirituality and non-dualism is much more present in India popularly. Both exist in both. But um, he had no problem with, it wasn't an either or thing. It was like, yeah, both. And I, and I thought it was like, wow, that's, pretty amazing that you're able to hold these two seemingly opposite approaches to seeing the world and spirituality and philosophy at the same time without even a hint of conflict <laughs> just like yeah both it's a, it's a question of um compartmentalizing and also orders of resolution um so it's a question of what you're solving for and, and where you're standing and, and what aspect of reality you're looking at for what this is the thing. Reality can't fit into the left brain. It's not possible. Mathematics can't fit entirely into rational numbers. How could spiritual and philosophical truths fit into our our need for something to be A or B or C or which is it? That's one mode, right? That mode yeah. of inquiry is important. It's crucial. But I think one of the major fallacies um, of our now global civilization is the conceit that um, the, the, the mode of of um, 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 logical or critical rational thought is sufficient to container for the abyss of the spiritual experience. I think that's one of the great conceits of our times. But uh, to each to each their own, and um, everyone's got a different piece of the puzzle. Um, <laughs> what else do you want to reveal about your your your, your spiritually shady past? What else are you trying to stump? <laughs> Uh, my favorite archetype from the Bible is Mary Magdalene. Puzzle on that one for a while. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. I'm not surprised uh, at all. Someone who moves from the margins, who understands the teachings in a profound way. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, let me ask you, um, sort of you've been asking me about my connection to yoga, why I feel so passionate about it. You seem to have a pretty um, deep, knowledge not just a cursory knowledge but a pretty established knowledge of western traditions and stories and philosophies and uh how did that come about i mean for a hint uh, do you identify as a hindu scholar or uh well, what, so what, my, yeah what would your title be so my training is in religious studies right yeah. so i've studied you know my Undergrad was in comparative religion. So I've studied various world religions. Yeah. So, for example, if I'm teaching world religions, uh, I think in 2017 I was at Ryerson University teaching, that's university, it's in a sort of a urban university downtown Toronto teaching world religions. So that, the, the, the being, a, being conversant in all of the world's religions is part of my religious studies training. Being interested in all the world's religions is just how I arrived on this planet. It's... Yeah. Um, I arrived. Um, um, uh, um, spirituality isn't a concept for me, and wisdom isn't a concept for me. It's real. It's lived. It's palpable, and it's clear to me, at least in my perspective, that um, the various religions and creeds of the earth are um, grappling with the one reality that humans share, both socially and spiritually, and psycho-spiritually. Um, so. There's there's training. There's sort of a more of a heterodox mind that I have um, in terms of my own personal journey. I was raised in Toronto and was a very sort of secular, non-practicing dude who enjoyed artsy fartsy courses and spirituality a great deal. 
Um, it wasn't until my um, early 20s after having dropped out of a BA uh, that I was spiritually seeking. And lo and behold, um, <laughs> while I was looking at various world philosophies and cultures, of course, it's there right in your own backyard. Um, yeah. It was, uh, it was uh, Indian teachings and philosophies that most resonated with me. And at the same time, I discovered introduction to, to Hinduism the day it started at the University of Toronto in 2004. And so destiny intervened and I, it, it succeeded in, in, in roping me back into school to do a religious studies degree studying Sanskrit narrative. And so here I am, uh, uh, basically with a Western upbringing, um, uh, a, a not particularly religious Hindu home at the backdrop of that upbringing, and then discovering that I have a, uh, a profoundly Indian soul, and I've met a number of masters. I've trained. Um, I've trained for a very long time. Uh, I've learned all kinds of things. And so I'm in this very strange space of sharing at the online school, um, a medley of, 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 of lineal teachings with scholarship, with storytelling. Um, welcome to the Global Village. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because I found yoga out of a deep, deep dislike for my own traditions, <laughs> the ones I was born into. And now, uh, like, I wouldn't identify as Christian, but I love, love reading the Gospels. I mean, I find such yoga in the Gospels. Um, and I teach my big class every week is in a cathedral, in a church. So it's so interesting to, to come full circle, to be in that place of, like, how did this happen? Well, it's... Uh, different flavors, you know. I, it, I've had um, all kinds of interesting experiences in, in various traditions. Um, I've had a couple of really fascinating and profound experiences in Catholic churches. Mm-hmm. If I, you know, if at the end of this life, you know, I need to sign a contract in terms of where I go next and I get to come back down here, assuming to say and if they're like they need to be a denomination of christianity um i think i would pick roman catholicism (laughs) (laughs) right that may sound interesting from a social perspective but um the ritual and you know the 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 shakti the energy of of you know the the old churches eh, at the same time it's you're you're right i mean it's 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 a very it can be a very narrow rigid stifling path as well and yeah. yet there's so much soul food there as well. So I, I, I think I can. Yeah. You know, I was, um, I find that uh, conflict, not conflict like bad, but just like when somebody challenges you, it's such a great opportunity to learn and go inside yourself and actually think about your position on something. And when I first started teaching yoga at Grace Cathedral, uh, one of the older, um, I think it was a, deacon or somebody who was a prominent member of the Christian community there came up and he said, I, I have no problem with yoga, but I just don't know why you want to exercise in my church. (laughs) And I said, well, to be fair, I don't see it as exercise. I see it as meditation, just done through the body as opposed to sitting. Um, and I said, but honestly, I feel very close to yoga And I feel like there's a lot of connection between yoga and the Eucharist. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, what's the difference between experiencing the Eucharist on Sunday and eating a bag full of donuts? And he said, well, the Eucharist is sacred. I said, yeah, Christianity is taking this mundane activity of eating that we do day in and day out, usually unconsciously, and putting intention into it that makes it this transformative experience and we move all day long and we breathe all day long and most people do it unconsciously (laughs) but when you put intention into it it's very much like the eucharist it's taking the mundane and making it sacred and he was like that's incredible i get it and i'm like yeah i just made that up (laughs) you know it's like the piece sort of like the pieces clicked for me at the same time (laughs) but i mean it, it was sort of forced to think why is it sacred that we do yoga you know why is it different than going to the gym and bench pressing i can't tell you how much i learn 
by answering students' questions. Yeah. I mean that quite literally. Yeah. I, I often have no idea what I think or how to think of something until someone asks a question. And it never would have occurred to me to to perceive it in that way or articulate mm. in that way. And, and the, it's it, with the right mindset, of course. Yeah. Um, it's very... It's very fulfilling, engaging interlocutors who are also just looking for conversation. They're not looking for exploitation or dominion or, or, or proselytization. When you find interlocutors of different faiths and traditions, there's so much to be learned. Um, someone that I had on the podcast um, uh, a few podcasts ago, her name is Ruth Roth. She's actually a staunch member of the Roman Catholic Church, but she's also a Roman Catholic woman priest. She's part of a movement, right? Uh, I think in 2013, a bishop of the church ordained seven priests. So they would have the parampara, if you will. They'd have the lineal transmission. But also, they're obviously de facto excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church <laughs> officially. But the, uh, what I didn't mention on the podcast is when I went to Calgary to do my 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 doctorate, um, I lived in their house for a couple of years and I learned so much because there was, they were so very Roman Catholic mm. and they were so very not in very different ways. And they were so very open to conversation and learning about other traditions. And it was just, you know, and I had this intuitive flash. I mean, I would think it was my first year there. I said, I don't know what it is. I see you in robes and I don't mean judge or, or bathroom. Like, like I see you in robes. I'm not sure what it is. And uh, there she was about five years later getting ordained. Um, wow. So it's, it's, it's interesting, right? It's, it's, uh, there are all these um, fascinating uh, shades of gray in terms of religion and spirituality. And one of the things that whenever I speak to her, however, seldomly, it's sort of like, you know, this, 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 um, <laughs> this, this golden girls conversation at the table with cheesecake or whatever, where you're just kind of chewing about, you know, you're just kind of talking about life and it's staggering how we can arrive at the same position or the same conclusion or the same advice coming from extraordinarily different trainings and worldviews. But, um, um, do you know about the work of, um, father Beatty Griffiths? Oh, you would love him. He was a Catholic priest, and he he started an ashram in India, and he would do like all. It, he was very Catholic. He wrote a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita from a Christian perspective, and he. But his ashram, they would do like the Eucharist and all of the different Catholic rituals. But he also wove in many of the like the Indian and Hindu rituals like RT at night and stuff like that. And, and really merge this like pantheistic tradition with his monotheistic tradition and did it beautifully. And I don't think he was excommunicated, but he came pretty darn close. <laughs> so this is someone I want to read. <laughs> That's um, yeah. He was a great, great guy. There's a documentary about him, but he's this, if you just Google him, you'll uh, you'll love him. He's just really amazing. I would have gone to study with him, but he died just a few years before I was able to just pack up and leave my family home. <laughs> I think he died in like nineteen eighty-eight or something like that. Uh, life had other plans for you. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, what do you primarily work on these days? What's your primary work these days? Um. Well, I'm teaching yoga again, finally, <laughs> after a, a long forced sabbatical, COVID forced sabbatical. Um, and I'm working on some new books. And I also do a lot of coaching work with um, yoga teachers because I, I've sort of, it's interesting because I'm not a real business oriented person, but I realized early on that if I were going to do what I love, I'd have to do it with some intention. Like I couldn't just sit around and talk about yoga and hope that people would show up. Um, so I put a lot of effort into learning how to, not in the gross, nasty, capitalistic to, way. To but market yourself. Yeah. Market and myself, brand myself, doing, yeah. say, who am I as a teacher and what? who's my audience? And so I do a lot yes. of work helping other teachers and yoga studios do, you know, like to answer those questions and, you know, 
create a business plan for themselves and execute on it. Um, so that's sort of my main thing. And I, I run a teacher training, or I did, and I'm re, sort of rebooting that a little bit <laughs> slowly. Yeah, there's there's lots of parallels, lots of interesting stuff. One thing I have to comment on in, in what you said is something that's so close to home for myself in that I finished the 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 doctorate in 2015 and by fall 2015 is when I defended and by new year's 2016, I rang in the new year's with literally four cents to my name, credit maxed out, everything maxed out. Cause you know, uh, my funding had ended and I had a bunch of student debt and uh, there were no jobs in my field. And so I had to sort of turn to entrepreneurship. Um, and one of the greatest challenges that I'm glad that I made some headway on is, you know, um, thinking of myself as some kind of escort, right? Thinking of myself as like, right, like this is the, the these, this baggage that we have about sales and marketing and, and perhaps rightly so at times because there's so many people who are selling snake oil or, or, their, or their, their talk is, is, is incommensurate with their offer type thing. And, but uh, something really shifted in that very painful process of learning that, never having taken a marketing or sales course, but learning that and understanding that, hey, they don't know you exist. They don't know what you do. Yeah. How, how, how can you help them if they, if you can't communicate that to them? Yeah, it's like right. throwing a party and not sending out invitations and then sitting on your pity pot when no one shows up to your party, right? Marketing is just a way of inviting people in. And there's an unethical way of doing it where you manipulate people. And then there's an ethical way where you say, hey, this thing I'm offering might be of interest to you. And some people it will be and some people it won't be. And it's not personal. Um, you know, not everybody is resonates with me as a yoga teacher or as an author, as whatever. Um, but the ones that do, I need to send them an invitation. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a lovely way to think about it. We should probably do something together at some point. There's so much overlap. I would love that. You know, as we were talking, I was thinking one thing I would love to do with you is because I get this question a lot, and I feel qualified to give like a, a sort of a top level answer but i feel like people deserve more than what i can give them um mm -hmm. like what you said hinduism is is something that the british came up with like this umbrella term um and we tend to think of it as like almost like you think of a catholic like where there's the pope in rome and what the pope says goes and all catholics have these same tenets uh, hindus of course are all over the map with what they believe they, there's a through line, right? But um, helping people to understand that, understand what is called today Hinduism, because it is packaged so differently than many other religions. It's not really a religion. It's a loose collection of <laughs> religions. Um, and I would love to dive into that or the mythology piece. I get so many questions about the, you know, the symbolism of the different Hindu deities. Um, oh, that's really cool. And I think that's that would the, be really interesting to dive into with you. You know, those two are definitely in the wheelhouse. One comes from sort of religious studies training and specifically Hindu studies training. My academic training is in, mm. for lack of a better term, Hindu studies, but specifically, specifically what? Sanskrit narrative texts, AKA uh, Indian mythology. And so, all things Indic and mythological or conceptual, that's certainly something I can help with and I'd be happy to. It'd be, yeah. I think, really fun and uh, meaningful to, um, to how to think of it, to sort of um, create an experience for students with us both bringing our strengths to the table. Yeah. Of, of course, it'd be overlap. As I say, you probably could do a fair bit of the ancient religion and mythology, but it's probably stuff I've spent a bunch more time doing. And likewise, you know, um, certainly I wouldn't go and try to teach asana or, or, or kinesiology or it's just, you know, my headspace is elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, so I, definitely we'll, something else. Let's put our heads together and come up with something. We'll, we'll figure it out. I, I think we have, we have uh, aired our personal life to the public for enough for one day. Um, <laughs> just stay on They've the call. realized just how boring we really are. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're probably like, wait, 
Wait, wait, they're like that, just getting on a call and not having met. Damn, imagine if they actually put some effort into this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Stay on the call, but let's sign off for now. Um, Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Uh, It was a joy. Thank you so much. You're welcome. For those of you listening, we have been gaining um, um, pearls of wisdom, um, uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, entrepreneurial advice, you name it. <laughs> We've been learning from uh, Darren Main, uh, yoga teacher and author, among other things. Um, all of his offerings are available at darrenmain.com. Until next time, stay safe, uh, stay well, and keep contemplating um, the power of yoga. Take care.